there's somebody in like, you know, Sydney, Australia right now with a book in their hand is thinking about the world along the same lines of the conversation that we're having. It's literally us manipulating and maneuvering 26 letters into different arrangements that might just liberate somebody. Literacy is, is freedom. And so, so many people was yelling, you know, and it was wild to me. I was like, and this is literature right here. <laughs> you know what I mean? I was like, I was like, this is the importance of books. You're listening to The Freedom Takes, a podcast from the Million Book Project. I'm your host, Reginald Dwayne Betts. I'm a poet, a lawyer, and a founder and director of the Million Books Project. And I'm Elsa Hardy. I'm a PhD student in African-American studies at Harvard and a law student at Yale. I work with Dwayne on the Million Book Project. On this show, we talk to the authors of books we are sending to readers in prisons across this country. We talk to them about their creative work, what inspires them, and what it means to be free. Mr. McBride is the author of The Color of Water, Miracle at St. Anna, Deacon King Kong, and the National Book Award winning The Good Lord Bird. But it is a, a true pleasure to have you here today with us. Well, I'm delighted to be here, Dwayne. You go by Dwayne, right? Yeah. I just be trying to confuse people by saying my first name is Reginald. And then they'd be like, well, wait a minute, who's the Reginald, who's the Wayne? So if somebody's looking for me, they can kind of get a little confused, you know? Well, that's okay. I understand. <laughs> if somebody's looking for you, just don't tell them you know me. That'd be that'd be fine with me. <laughs> um, yeah, well, uh, nice to be here. And, uh, you know, so this is a good project. And it speaks to, you know, a community that I care about a lot. And, you know, we're involved in the struggle to be to be free and to free so many people who need to be free. So um, I'm glad that you, you know, that you found me out. So that's my story and I'm sticking to it. Yeah. <laughs> so Mr. McBride, to get us started here, could you introduce the good Lord bird for our readers and um, maybe read a little bit from it? Um, yeah. Okay. Well, I got to get a book first. Hang on a sec. <laughs> Uh, the Good Lord Bird is about, um, it's about the white abolitionist John Brown, who in 1859 attacked the Harpers Ferry arsenal, which was uh, where America stored all of its uh, weapons, made its weapons and stored most of its rifles, about 100,000 rifles. He attacked with 19 men um, with the help of his, uh, his daughters and, uh, and his daughters-in-law. And... Uh, he actually succeeded in attacking the arsenal, taking it over for almost three days. And actually John Brown would have gotten away if he had not waited for the quote unquote Negroes to hive. He was convinced that blacks would find out about the insurrection that he, uh, that he put together and hive to, the, to Harpers Ferry and join him. But he made a bunch of tactical mistakes, which cost him and, and most, of his, uh, most of the 19 men with him cost him their lives. Uh, he was hung along with five or six others. The others were killed during the, during the, the, the fight. Uh, a couple got away. Anyway, I became fascinated with the story and wanted to create a story that, that people would read to the end. And so, um, you know, I figured out a way to do it. I created this character named Onion, Henry Shackelford, who claims to be the only surviving member of the John Brown raid. And so he tells this whopper of a story to someone in his church in like the 1940s. 
and that person kept a diary of it and that person died and when the church burned down somebody found the diaries and so this the, the good lord bird is really a diet the diary of an old man telling his life story all right you know, it's a whopper you know so you know it's meant to be funny but tragically so um and that's it so you, you you sure you want me to read from it yeah and, ma- and mainly just to give you a little bit of context it's like uh, you know i served eight and a half years in prison and i never got a chance to meet an author I've read all of these books. I didn't even know writers like read from their books publicly and you create the voices of characters in your head, but it's, it's great to hear from them. And so we're trying to create the experience that, you know, you spend five, 10, 15, 20 years in prison. You literally never get a chance to have this moment. And so for a lot of people, including some people who sent us questions, they read the good Lord bird and it'll just be one of those true honors to, to hear it in your voice. But also when they hear it in your voice, they'll recognize, Oh, that's 350 pages, but that, that sounds good. I, I could pick that up and read it. And so this is us trying to create a kind of gateway experience for people who who truly otherwise like just wouldn't get the chance to hear you. Yeah, okay. All right. Well, I'm delighted to do that. And uh I uh it hurts my heart to hear, hear you talk about uh so many, so many men, especially some of these young men who've been in prison and some who are not young who have been there. You know, it's hard to think about. I have a lot of you know, several friends who, you know, who who didn't make out so well. Um, so, uh, you know, uh, well, this is for all of those who are in prison and who are who are who are not free in your in your physically, but in your mind and in your heart. No one can take away your intelligence. No one can take away your spirit and the things that God or Allah, whoever you worship, has given you including works like this. Now, when I was in Robben Island and I saw when Nelson Mandela was imprisoned, uh, I was inspired, not so much by the physicality of the place, but by the spirit of the men with whom he spent a good 27 years of his life. And most of what they did was they read books and they talked about them. And they could tell you anything. They could, they could, they could quote Goth and they could quote, you know, Malcolm X and, and uh, you know, Nietzsche, they read all the time and reading was their freedom. Anyway, I'm getting, I'm, I'm getting, uh, I'm going on a little tangent here. We're, we're running against the clock. So I'm going to just start reading. They don't need to hear me preach. They can get that themselves. I'll just I don't know. Start. They might need to hear you preach too, but we, we take the reading <laughs> and the preaching. Well, I'm going to begin at the very beginning. I, I'll skip the prelude. I mean, the, the forward. The forward simply sets up the story. This story is written in the first person. This is an old man talking. This is Onion, Henry Shackelford, telling his story to a friend of his at uh, some Baptist church in Wilmington, Delaware. And so this is kind of reads reads kind of like a diary. Uh, Chapter one is entitled Meet the Lord. I was born a colored man and don't you forget it, but I lived as a colored woman for 17 years. My pa was a full-blooded Negro out of Osawatomie in Kansas territory north of Fort Scott near Lawrence. Pa was a barber by trade, though that never gave him full satisfaction. Preaching the gospel was his main line. Pa didn't have a regular church like the type that don't allow nothing but bingo on Wednesday nights and women sitting around making paper doll cutouts. He saved souls one at a time, cutting hair at Dutch Henry's Tavern, which was tucked at a crossing on the California Trail that runs along the Carr River in South Kansas Territory. Pa ministered mostly to lowlifes, four flushes, slaveholders, and drunks who came along the Kansas Trail. 
He weren't a big man in size, but he dressed big. He favored a top hat, pants that drawed up around his ankles, high collar shirt and heeled boots. Most of his clothing was junk he found or items he stole off dead white folks on the prairie, killed off from dropsy or aired out on account of some dispute or other. His shirt had bullet holes in it the size of quarters. His hat was two sizes too small and his trousers come from two different colored pairs sewn together in the middle where the arse met. His hair was nappy enough to strike a match on. Most women wouldn't go near him, including my ma, who closed her eyes in death, bringing me to this life. She was said to be a gentle high yellow woman. Your ma was the only woman in the world man enough to hear my holy thoughts, Pa boasted, for I am a man of many parts. Whatever them parts was, they didn't add up to much, for all full up and dressed to the nines, complete with boots and three inch top hat, Pa only came out to about four feet, eight inches tall, and quite a bit of that was air. But what he lacked in size, Pa made up for with his voice. My Pa could out yell with his voice any white man who ever walked God's green earth, bar none. He had a high, thin voice. When he talked, it sounded like he had a Jew's harp stuck down his throat, for he spoke in pops and bangs and such, which meant speaking with him was a two-for-one deal, being that he cleaned your face and spit-washed it for you at the same time. Make that three-for-one when you consider his breath. His breath smelled like hog guts and sawdust, for he worked in a slaughterhouse for many years, so most colored folks avoided him, generally. But white folks liked him fine. Many a night I seen my pa fill up on joy juice and leap atop the bar at Dutch Henry's bar, snipping his scissors and hollering through the smoking gin, the Lord's coming, he's a coming to gnash out your teeth and tear out your hair, then fling yourself into a crowd of the meanest, low-down, pissed, drunk Missouri rebels you ever saw. And while they mostly clubbed him to the floor and kicked out his teeth, them white fellas didn't no more blame my pa for flinging himself at them in the name of the Holy Ghost than if a tornado was to come along and toss him across the room. For the spirit of the Redeemer who spilt his blood was serious business out on the prairie in them days, and your basic white pioneer weren't no stranger to the notion of hope. Most of them was fresh out of that commodity, having come west on a notion that hadn't worked out the way it was drawn up anyway. So anything that helped them out of bed to kill off Indians and not drop dead from fever and rattlesnakes was a welcome change. It helped too that Pa made some of the best rot gut in Kansas territory. Though he was a preacher, Pa weren't against the taste of three, and like as not the same gunslingers who tore out his hair and knocked him cold would pick him up afterward and say, let's liquor, and the whole bunch of them would wander off and howl at the moon, drinking Pa's giddy sauce. Pa was right proud of his friendship with the white race, something he claimed he learned from the Bible. Son, he'd always say, always remember the book of Hezekiah, 12th chapter, 17th verse. Hold out thy glass to thy thirsty neighbor, Captain Ahab, and let him drinketh his fill. I was a grown man before I know there weren't no book of Hezekiah in the Bible, nor was there any Captain Ahab. Fact is, Pa couldn't read a lick and only recited Bible verses he'd heard white folks tell him. I'll read a little bit more, okay? And this yeah, one, yeah. It's John Brown. Um, Dutch Henry sat right near the Missouri border. It served as a kind of post office, courthouse, rumor mill, and gym house for Missouri rebels who came across the Kansas line to drink, throw cards, tell lies, frequent whores, and holler to the moon about niggas taking over the world and the white man's constitutional rights being thrown in the outhouse by the Yankees and so forth. I paid no attention to that talk, for my aim in them days was to shine shoes 
while my pie cut hair and shoved as much Johnny cake and ale down my little red lane as possible. But come spring, Tuck Talk and Duchess circled around a certain murderous white scoundrel named Old John Brown, a Yank from back east who'd come to Kansas territory to stir up trouble with his gang of sons called the Potawatomi Rifles. To hear them tell it, Old John Brown and his murderous sons planned to deaden every man, woman, and child on the prairie. Old John Brown stole horses. Old John Brown burned homesteads. Old John Brown raped women and hacked off heads. Old John Brown done this and old John Brown done that. And why, by God, by the time they was done with him, old John Brown sounded like the most onerous, murderous, low-down son of a bitch you ever saw. And I resolved if I was ever to run across him, why, by God, I would do him in myself just on account of what he'd done or was going to do to the good white people I knowed. And not long after I made them proclamations, an old tottering Irishman teetered into Dutch Henry's and sat in Pa's barber chair. Weren't nothing special about him. There was a hundred prospecting prairie bums wandering around Kansas territory in them days looking for a lift west or job rustling cattle. This drummer weren't nothing special. He was a stooped skinny fella, fresh off the prairie, smelling like buffalo dung with a nervous twitch in his jaw and a chin full of ragged whiskers. His face had so many lines and wrinkles running between his mouth and his eyes that if you bundled them up, you could make a canal. His thin lips was pulled back to a permanent frown. His coat, vest, pants, and string tie looked like mice had chewed on every corner of him and his boots was altogether done in. His toes stuck clean through the toe points. He was a sorry looking package altogether, even by prairie standards, but he was white. So when he'd sat in Pa's chair for a barbershop for a cut and a shave, Pa put a bib on him and went to work. And as usual, Pa worked the top end and I'd done the bottom, shining his boots, which in this case was more toes than leather. And after a few minutes, the Irishman glanced around and seeing nobody was standing too close, said to Pa quietly, you a Bible man? Well, my Pa was a lunatic when it come to God and that perked him right up. He said, why boss, I surely is. I know all kinds of Bible verses. The old coot smiled. I can't say it was a real smile for his face was so stern it weren't capable of smiling, but his lips kind of widened out. The mention of the Lord clearly pleased him and it should have, for he was running on the Lord's grace right then and there. For that was the murderer, old John Brown himself, the scourge of Kansas territory, setting right there in Dutch's Tavern with a $1,500 reward on his head and half the population in Kansas territory aiming to put a charge in him. There's your read. Yeah, man, I, I appreciate that. That's a, it's like a fantastic book, and it's great to hear it, to hear it in your voice and to hear those characters come to life. Well, um, you know, um, writing a book is sort of like letting God into the room and hoping He's coughing and that you got a handkerchief. <laughs> <laughs> um, you do a lot of characterization with voice in this, and I know you play the sax, but it almost feels like a a jazz musician and John Brown, when he talks, it becomes him running on a, a, a solo. And I feel like it's the same kind of thing for Onion. And so I wonder how, you know, when you develop these characters and you're trying to get a richness in voice and voice and, and trying to distinguish them so that when you read it, you hear different people. What is that process like? Well, you know, there are a lot of ways to tell a story. And um, I know since I'm talking to people in prison, I'll give them everything I have. And maybe this will help them through the day because I don't normally do this, but I'm going to do this because I want, I want these men and hopefully some of these women to understand that, you know, when you get, when you have something, you have to share it with somebody. 
So now I'm, I'm sitting at a piano now. And if you have a song like this, let's see. That's what a friend we have in Jesus. And the, the, the standard, you know. to tell this same story. And when I was a kid and my mother would take us to church, you know, she would say, well, you know, and I'd be sitting there, you know, and the, you know how you know they pass that little tray around, you know, because when the when the minister's finished, he passed the tray around, and and you're supposed to, because you know, because they're trying to get, the, <laughs> and I'd be talking about, and my mother would be in the back, and she's like, I'm gonna kill you, I'm gonna kill you, I'm gonna kill you. But there's a lot of ways to tell the same story, and a good minister can do that. A good minister can tell a story a good storyteller. It doesn't have to be a good minister. It could be a good, uh, you know, a, a prophet. It could be a good person. It could be a good holy man. They have a lot of ways to tell the story. So it's really not about the story you tell, but it's about the structure of the story that you choose. Because the truth though is that John Brown was, was a man who was humorless. He had no, he was, he had no sense of humor. He was a dead serious guy. And if he said he was going to pull out his you know, pull out his six shooter and drop the hammer on it, you could pretty much count on that happening. So I chose to tell the story in a way that would, that would engage people and also involve a lot of the humor that brings a smile to your face when I play, you know. Because a lot of us know yeah. you're supposed to be in church singing. Meanwhile, they didn't move the tax base out the neighborhood. The crack dealers have everything. There's no opportunity for young people yet you still find a way and a means to smile about life. That's really why, uh, that's, really, that's really why I did that example, because I want people to see, I want a lot of these men and women hopefully to see that there's a lot of ways to tell your story and the structure that you choose is really the most important, the most important means of getting the story, transmitting that particular history to people. Yeah, no, that's so, powerful. I'm curious how you got interested in John Brown to begin with, and also thinking about structure and, and like the different choices that you can make in telling a story, how you came to the decision to tell it not from his perspective, but from the perspective of a child. Well, um, I've just got, I got interested in him because I was doing a, a book about Harry Tubman uh, that eight people read, you know, and I have 11 brothers and sisters, so that, that tells you how many <laughs> that book, but... <laughs> While I was researching the book, I was down in um, in the D.C., Maryland area, you know, and uh, and and uh, I was at a, a um, in the Easton, Maryland, E.A.S.T.O.N., where Frederick Douglass was born, in the Historical Society, and you know, these historical societies are normally run by you know people who are. Look this way: when a black person walks into a historical society, they get nervous right away. You know, because they, they think you're there to either bum money or steal something or whatever. And then if you ask intelligent questions, either they're nice about it or they're just ding-dongs. But the ones in eastern, Pens in eastern Maryland were ding-dongs. But so 
I didn't bother with them because I had work to do. And there was a diary there that mentioned John Brown. He was on the Eastern shore of Maryland, which is the little, you know, the little where Annapolis and all that is. In any case, he mentioned John Brown and he mentioned the raid on Harpers Ferry. And I was so fascinated. I just drove right over to Harpers Ferry and took a look at it. When I looked at it, I said, this is a good story. So when I finished the, the Harry Tubman book, um, and then I wrote a James Brown book after that. And then I went, went back to the John Brown story and tried to figure out a way to tell it. I decided to use a kid's voice. Um, the truth is the person who's telling the voice, he's an old man, but he's a kid. So, you know, the trick is you have to tell it in the voice of a kid with the maturity and the hindsight and the wisdom of an old man. Childhood innocence is always a good thing to use if it's used right. It's oftentimes not used right. But it's refreshing to, to read about it when from the perspective of a, of a kid who's poor or black or Hispanic, you know, because um, that part of innocence is never rarely seen. I mean, you know, Claude Brown did it and, and Richard Wright did it to some degree. I mean, Toni Morrison does it with brilliance in the bluest eye, but it's, there's not a lot of it. So I see this all the time in Red Hook. I can see the innocence leaving these kids' lives when they're 11, 12 years, especially when they get a cell phone, you know, and that just bothers me a lot. But anyway, so that's why I chose that, that form. Yeah, no, that's interesting because, you know, I, I wrote my memoir and one of the things I was trying to do was, was try to write from a kid that was 16 and suddenly in prison. And um, I like to think of, of, of prison wildly as like innocence lost or, or innocence found mainly because you end up really as close to the bottom that that you'd ever been in life and i think if you're smart about it you you start to confront the world in a way that's um that reveals something to you that you have refused to notice and, and so anyway i tried to write my book that way but i, I think i struggled with it partly because um i had no real idea what story i was telling and, and i feel like onion is that way though you know Onion has no idea what story he's telling. Like he doesn't know if he's going to make it and he doesn't know what's going to happen from moment to moment. And you see a, a complexity in his decisions. And I, and I wondered when I was reading it, it's something that happens between the, the black characters where the moral dilemma is so complicated that nobody has one train, you know, Bob is his own person. Um, Sabonia is just mm -hmm. fantastic. But then so is pie in a way. And I found that Onion couldn't judge any of them. And I found that I couldn't judge any of them either. And I just wondered, were they intentionally set against the, the moral clarity that on the surface John Brown had? Well, you, you're asking a two-part question. The first part question is you probably know the answer to that better than I do, but it, there's certainly, there's a lot there because the, the a, a young person who is finding his moral compass, um, who hits bottom in, in, in the prison industrial complex in America has to in, develop an enormous amount of fortitude and strength and hopefully help both inside and outside the institution to, to, get, to get back to finding the buoy point, the lighthouse that they had started with before they ended up there. 
because you know because prison is basically it's, it's a trap you know it's a trap that many some many millions have fallen into so if you coming into manhood at the same time that you're in the, that you fall into the machine a lot of these questions can't be answered properly unless there's someone there to help you do that and i'm sure in some in a lot of cases there are people to help you make that move but in terms of john brown's perspective and the perspective of the book is that one of John Brown's gifts was that he didn't judge anybody. And, and as a writer, you have to remember, if there is no judgment, there is no journey. If there is no journey, there is no book. So you're right. Pi was a villainous character, but we're not qualified to judge whether Pi was villainous or not. She used what she could to get where she could go. I remember when I lived on 43rd Street in Manhattan, it was, you know, this is back, you know, this is back going back 25 years now. You know, the prostitutes there with the, I felt safer with them on the street than when the cops were around because I, they all knew me. And, you know, I mean, and I knew that they you know, their handlers and stuff. They knew I didn't bother them. So I knew I, when I hit the block, when I hit 43rd between 9th and 10th, I was okay. I was safe. Now, but I went 44th Street, that's a whole different thing. But, you know, but I knew when I hit my block, if them, them ladies were, I was safe. I didn't have to walk in the middle of the street, nothing like that. And because I didn't have judgment for them, I understood, or at least I thought I did. This is their job. My job is to take my horn and get back to that apartment before somebody knocks my teeth out and takes my horn and my, my $50 that I just made. So my point is that the second part of your question is easy to answer. When there's no judgment, there's no journey. Without journey, there's no book. The first part, Really, you're more qualified to discuss that for, for me from a perspective, from perspective of being in prison, but from the perspective of being a young person who has, who's trying to follow their moral compass, that's not necessarily a young person problem. That's a problem for everybody. And at some point, the older you get, the become, more you become who you really are, whether you're in or out of jail, you still become who you really are. And if your moral compass is set straight, then you, your chances of getting into, you know, into the good place after you leave this life, whatever that good place is for you, are much greater. Because what John Brown does say, and I always affect him, he said, this, this little small space is life. And the rest of it is what's beyond us. And you know, if you want to get to the rest of it, your karma in this life is better be. It better be right. So I've done two degrees in African-American studies at this point, and my dad has had a long-standing fascination with John Brown. He's a jazz pianist, and he's writing a musical about him, and yet this was the most time that I had spent with John Brown. I really came to know him through this book, and I had always had this impression of him as being this like very impassioned but measured person, but in the novel, he comes off as being kind of unwieldy, almost fanatic. And so I wonder how much of his personality you invented and how much was rooted in history that you read. I don't know. Um, I, I didn't, once I started writing the book, I didn't really go back to check to see if, you know, like if someone bought him a seven up instead of a ginger ale, if he'd like, you know, flip out. Um, novels don't happen that way. Um, so I, you know, this John Brown is a fictional character based on, quote unquote, based on the real thing. Um, he did a lot of the things that the real John Brown did, but 
I, I really can't answer that question because in the very act of deciding what to include or exclude makes every piece of nonfiction a piece of fiction, really. I mean, a lot of the people that, um, that we're talking about that are gonna see this, if they could tell you their side of the story, it would be completely different than what, you know, the prosecutor or the cops or the victim would have to say. So we create these set of arbitrary laws or men not so arbitrary laws that tell us, you know, who's right and who's wrong. As a storyteller, your job is to try to avoid the traps that are, that are morally unjust. And so that was more important to me than whether I was accurate to, you know, like whether John Brown was, you know, I, it doesn't matter because we live in a world of, of right and wrong where the goalposts are moved around so much that, you know, today's patriotic heroes tomorrow's is tomorrow's villain um you know so your moral justice has to come from someplace out of society the moral drive within us has to be attached to something that is good if you want to write good books anyway but anyway i hope that answered your question i just wonder where does that come from because your books chase something and and it's here in good little bird but it's also here in deacon king kong where i don't know i end up liking your characters and, and my my ability to to like them as people it's not like rooted in race it's not rooted in culture i guess i'm trying to say that you do a a, a really good job of portraying a multifaceted group of people in ways that we are often hearing now suggested is impossible Bitterness and anger is toxic to good writing. And, and it's also toxic to leading a good life. I remember when crack destroyed the housing projects, destroyed families. And, you know, the level of patience and goodwill and kindness and humanity and courage that so many of these people who suffered this face life with makes me makes me it makes me ashamed to even complain about you know a flat tire really so yeah i i have an appreciation for all cultures i mean part of it's because the way i was raised you know my mother was white you know we lived in the black community and we never really you know uh nobody called my mother names i mean they knew she had all these kids and they kids would fight back and nobody called us mulattoes or nothing you know i mean they call us niggas mostly if they called us anything but i mean you know, we, I mean, we, we were, we were happy. Now today, you know, it's different. It's, it's a whole different world, but I mean, this hardcore racism, classism that exists in the world was not really part of my growing up life. You know, we just treated people decent and, and my church was the same way. Not all of us. Now you got some serious hypocrites in the church, but so it just, it just came out in my books. That's all. I mean, look at look at your, your great writers, W.B. Du Bois and Toni Morrison and, and your great musicians, Sonny Rollins, John Coltrane. Everyone talks about this. They were the nicest people, really, people who knew them. They say, you know, Miles Davis was supposedly, oh, he would pull a gun on you. They always say that about black jazzmans. They all pull a gun on you. You must have known that in my head when you were naming that list, I was like, I don't know if they're going to say that about Miles Davis, though. No. <laughs> well, if you listen to Eddie Jefferson's music, Eddie Jefferson, who, who, did, who did a lot of, you know, he translated jazz solos into words. And he explains what Miles is like. 
And um, Miles was a very good person. Um, he was a tortured man. He was a brilliant cat, man. And, um, you know, these guys weren't pulling out guns and shooting because they were like trying to rob people. They were creating an art form that went around the world and they couldn't even get a glass of soda in Memphis. So, you know, at a, at a restaurant. So, you, you, I mean, look, if someone punches you in the face like five times, are you supposed to stand there and say, you know, may God bless you and keep you? Maybe, but maybe not. Everybody's not going to act, act the same way when they're oppressed. But that, that, that said, I'm not against someone who, who's Italian who becomes a mafioso because he can't get a job, a real job, can't go to college. And I'm not against an Irishman who becomes a cop or an Irish woman who becomes a cop because that's what their father did. I'm not even against them becoming a racist because that's what they know. What I'm against is when they translate that into a kind of you know, wholesale oppression of people because they are too lazy to look into history or, too, or, too, or, or, or lack the, the, the desire to look into the causality of why they're behaving the way they do. You should know that like one of the cool things is, is, is listening to somebody you admire riff on the world and the communities that they live in. You know, there's people inside that's like, I've done serious harm to folks and, and, and I'm trying to transform my life and I'm doing all of this work. And, and hearing you talk, I think is opening up the ability to like grapple with some of that because you know the the the, the notion that we mischaracterize people because we choose to only see them and view them superficially is one of the things your books push against but one of the things that that we need to hear more of because i actually feel like you know that's the more one of the more powerful aspects of the book is to see the humanity and the folks who didn't always make the decisions that that you imagine you would have made you know, God will forgive the blackest sin in the world. Pardon the use of the term black. He'll forgive the worst sin. You're, you're entitled to make mistakes in this life. And a lot of the mistakes you make are based on the information that you have. Information is everything. Books are the gateway to freedom. You know, I, I'm, I'm not going to regale you with stories of people that I've known who made just one mistake and suffered the entire life for it because because I you 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 know your your audience knows that story, but the the real story is those who can take that moment where they wish they would have take that moment back, let off that, and move into the freedom that exists within here. Because when you open a book, you can go you can travel around the world, and you can go inside yourself. And you find things that need work, and then you go to the library and you find a book, and that book will tell you. It'll give you avenues in which you can find ways to tell that story to yourself in, in ways that you find acceptable. Because you can't, you can't live your life. You can't live your life thinking that uh, you should have done this or that. That's gone. It's about the struggle for freedom now. And it's about the struggle to be full now. And you can be full anywhere. I talked to Sonny Rollins, and Sonny Rollins was in prison. And he, it really offends him when, when people bring that up, as well it should. Because in his day, you know, a lot of jazz musicians did drugs. They had to, just to keep from going crazy. And uh, he got busted for something. I think, you know, it doesn't matter what it was. What matters is every time someone talks about him, they always mention that, like that defines him. That act or whatever act it was does not define him. You can't let someone else's judgment of your mistake and your tribulation define you. 
And so he went on after that and he, he became one of the great musicians of all time. And so if you're writing a book, just make sure that your structural approach is free of bitterness and cynicism. Try to be not, not necessarily pure, nobody's pure, but just try to be honest about what you see and what, what you know. And it'll help your, your, it'll help your story and it'll help you because writing is a great catharsis. Um, and the writing skills that you have, that you develop when writing on your own will help you once you get to the outside. Uh, your ability to tell a story can take you a long way in this country, as, as evidenced by the four years of the 45th president we've experienced. This guy does nothing but tell stories, most of them not true, doesn't matter. He's a storyteller. Tell a good story and people who are too dense enough to realize this is a lie, they just listen to it. But a wise person will pick up a book, say this is here, here's a book, History of Disability in the United States, Epilepsy, uh, uh, Cape Verdean Writers. These were the people that, Moby, that Herman Melville was writing about when he wrote Moby Dick. By the way, the last three chapters of Moby Dick is probably the most exciting piece of fiction you will ever read, ever. Ever. When that whale gets mad, it's over. Captain Ahab starts kicking all kinds of ass. Moby Dick gets mad. And that's a metaphor for life, right? They were all going out to get this whale. They was going to kick the whales. Oh, we're going to get some whale meat and blubber. Okay. Okay. Check out Moby Dick. He has something for you. So how can someone hurt you when you know that kind of history, when you have that in you? They can't touch you. History is power. Anyway, um, I got to go soon, but um, um, I have to leave here in like five minutes. I'm sorry to say I'm the only guy in the COVID thing that got to go to work and all this, but <laughs> everybody else is sitting home watching Netflix. Yeah, you know, we just got we just got one more question. All right. Uh, we ask all of our interviewees this question at the end of our conversations. Frederick Douglass said that when we read, we become forever free. We'd love to hear what that means to you. You know, reading is the last line of defense, the last line of defense between the Wild West and you. And so when you open a book, you, you're putting up a barrier between what the world thinks of you and, and who you really are. So I can't emphasize it enough. If you read, you, you, are, you are moving on the path towards true freedom. You know, I appreciate the time that you've taken to talk to us, and I, I deeply thank you. Well, I'm, I'm uh, thank you for uh, inviting me, and I, I hope the project continues in, in all of its greatness. And I'm glad I got a chance to rant and rave. And uh, anything I say that's useful, use it. Whatever's not useful, just toss it in the trash. Just, just don't even <laughs> worry about it. Just uh, he's just an old fart. But take what you can, and uh, and the rest of it, just leave it and move. You know, move on, and remember that God will bless you. Just put God first, however you see him or her. You know, look, whatever gets you to the mainland, you know, whatever gets you to the mainland, stick with it. And if it's that good, give me a little taste too. I'm, I'm with you. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> yeah. I, I got to go now. See you later. Bye -bye. See you later. Thanks for joining us for The Freedom Takes, the new podcast from the Million Book Project. We'll be back next time with another contemporary writer. You can find out more about the Million Book Project and subscribe to our newsletter at millionbookproject.org. 
Our initiative was made possible by a generous grant from the Andrew W. Mellon Foundation. This podcast was produced by Aaron Slomsky-Pritz with production and research assistance from Elsa Hardy, Tess Wheelwright, and Molly Onger. We had additional help from students in the Cornell Prison Education Program at Auburn and the Myra Prisons in New York. Theme music by Reed Turchie.